Greetings and welcome to the Upward Call. I hope this day finds you blessed and I thank you for joining us today. Today on the Upward Call, we're going to really experience some, some great teaching from the Apostle Paul here in Philippians chapter 3. And as we turn to today's, we want to be ever aware of where we've been recently in the book of Philippians in chapter 3. Uh, the upward call of God, I'll remind you, is that call to be like Jesus Christ. It is a call to Him. And this sermon series is focused on the mindset and practices that help us produce progress in response to this call. And this series is going to encourage us to strain forward to what lies ahead and to help others to do the same. Last time we talked about pressing on and when we remind ourselves that in the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, Paul warned of dogs, of evildoers, of course not literal dogs, but those who would come in and distort the gospel by adding works to the salvation plan clearly stated in the gospel, which is to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And works is accomplishing salvation rather than the biblical view, this, this works view of salvation, creates many problems for the gospel and indeed imprisons the, the believer in uh, to something that is less than the gospel. So with that said, we want to continue on and I want to propose to you a potential outline as we take a look at this. Uh, a potential outline as we see here is going to be past, present, and future. In other words, as Paul opens chapter 3 in the first few verses, he gives a warning to the church about these people who would come and distort the gospel. And then he kind of gives his resume of the past and talks about those things. He was more than just an exemplary Jew. He was zealous for the, uh, the Jewish faith and persecuted the Christian church, but he counted all such acts of self-righteousness, everything that he had done before knowing Christ, he counted them as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And then he kind of transitions to the present, uh, stating that what he does, and, and the only thing he does, is he strives forward toward the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And that's where we were last time. But today he's going to shift our vision to the future. And he's going to explain to us that as citizens of heaven, we look forward to the return of our Savior and our own glorious transformation that will take place at that time. So this time what we're going to see in, in called uh, Stand Firm Thus, based on some of the words we see in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to, uh, we're here in the present and we're going to set our focus toward the future. And here again, we see the motion of this book of Philippians. It is always upward. It is always toward the future and toward Christ and our destiny to be conformed to his image. Well, let's take a look at what we have here in the scriptures today. In Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 17, we'll read through chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, uh, even now, with tears, 
walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father God, it is indeed our desire to obey you here, to obey as what the Apostle Paul wrote, to stand firm in this way in the Lord. And so, Lord, we pray this day that you'll give us understanding of these things, that you'll be known and glorified through us, reviewing these things and learning these things, Lord. Uh, quicken our hearts this day. Bring us to life and help us, Lord, to, to serve you with all glory and honor that you are due. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to take a look at this uh, initially as uh, a contrast between two groups, the enemies of the cross and the citizens of heaven. And through that, we're going to see exactly how it is that we will be able to stand firm. So first of all, we'll take a look at the enemies and the, the question has to be, how, why even discuss the enemies of the cross? Well, we're going to discuss them because this is who we once were. And these patterns are still imprinted on us. And it also helps us to, to deal with ourselves because of that. It helps us because these patterns are still imprinted on us. We still are subject to, to sin, to error. And so we need to look at the enemies of the cross in order to examine ourselves. We also need to take a look at this because this is what put forth by Paul as a negative example. Don't imitate these. In other words, he's saying, imitate us. And he's speaking of himself and Timothy who wrote the letter and perhaps the others that he represents. But he's saying rather, you know, imitate us, but don't imitate these fellows. And so we're going to examine this, and then this is going to help us better understand uh, what it is that we are supposed to do. So first of all, who is he talking about when he says enemies of the cross? And he begins that in uh, verse 18. He says, many walk even now as enemies of the cross. I'm going to make the case that he's talking about those false teachers that he was talking about at the beginning of the chapter. And those who have in, in sequence then been led astray by them. And I'll make my case as we go through this point by point. These are called enemies of the cross because if they distort the gospel, it results in more people trusting in their own righteousness. In other words, they are leading people astray. They're telling people false things and people are believing them and following after them. And they're missing, if not entirely, the salvation that's in the gospel. They're missing the joy of their salvation. And so therefore, they're an enemy of the purpose of the cross, which was to bring reconciliation to men on God's terms, not on man's terms. Well, first point here is that their God is their belly. 
Their God is their belly. Their motivation is their own fleshly desires. I'll remind you uh, all the way back in the beginning of the book in Philippians 1.15, Paul said that some people were preaching from envy and rivalry, but this would also include pride. These are self-interested, like the people that we saw back in Philippians chapter 2 that were given in contrast to Timothy. He's, he said, Timothy's the only one who shares my interests in these things. False teachers build a following, and they build a following because of personal gain. They're looking for money. They're looking for position. They're looking for power. And that is the description of an unregenerate person. Think about this. If, if in fact, their God is their selfish desires, their desire for money, their desire for power, their desire to be important or in charge or whatever their, their sick desire is of the flesh, this is therefore a description of someone who's not saved. If we go to Ephesians chapter 2, we find out who we once were. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, and we were following what? We were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, by our own desires, seeking to fulfill our own desires. Phillips rightly paraphrases this, this you know, their God is their belly as their God is their own appetite. Whatever it is that they desire is what they are going after. And people who teach false gospels are driven by nothing other than their own selfish desires. They're looking to justify themselves. They, they want to have authority over somebody and are not as concerned really about the things of Christ. So they are in fact his enemy and an insult to the work that he has done on the cross. Enemies of the cross. Their glory is their shame. They boast in what they should be ashamed of, their achievements in the flesh. Paul talked about this earlier in the chapter where he counted all of his own efforts at self-righteousness from the past as rubbish. And those who add legalism on top of Christianity and then boast in their efforts and boast in their converts, they, they're glorifying those things in which they should be truly ashamed of. Think about this. If indeed Jesus Christ has saved you by his great grace through your faith in him, and then you go and you accomplish some good works, and then you look at those good works as, oh, look what I have been able to do. This is part of me being saved. I have saved myself through these works. What an insult is that to the cross of Christ? You are, if you do that, you are glorying in your own shame. That should be shameful to you that you would claim merit for those things. Do we do good works? Yes, absolutely. But we do good works as a result of the gospel. We do good works as an offering to God. And we do it out of a spirit of gratitude and, and dedication to him. Galatians chapter 6, Paul talks about those Judaizers, the same kind of heresy that he's talking about here, that when they convert someone, they, they think by getting circumcised to, to following the law, that now they boast in this. In other words, it's like they're saying, oh, look how many we've moved from Paul's way to our way of thinking. We told these people to get circumcised and so many number of them did. Aren't we something? What they have done is they've led these people astray.
for which they should be ashamed, but instead they boast, and it's their glory. Their mindset is earthly. Their their minds are set on earthly things, according to what we read here in in verse 19. Um, They're with minds set on earthly things. Their focus is on things that do not have lasting heavenly value. Again, not all that these people teach to do is bad self in an, is bad stuff in and of itself and but it feeds into the tendency we have to want to ask what are the rules that i need to follow what is the minimum i can do to enter into the kingdom is what we're really asking them. What are the right doctrines to affirm? What are the right books to read or the right people to follow? To to focus on the law and the fulfillment of the law is to focus on the flesh. And I want to bring you to what I believe to be the scariest verses in the Bible in Matthew chapter 7, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus brings this up and he says, um, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, you know, in these last days and even up to the last judgment, not everyone who calls him Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that, Jesus? What what's with these? He says, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Okay, we get that. We want to do the will of God. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? In other words, these people come to Jesus calling him Lord, Lord, which is a term of endearment. They seem to know who this is. They seem to know who Jesus is. They come and they appeal to their works. And I want to point out that some of these works are miraculous. To prophesy in his name, to cast out demons in his name and other mighty works. Mighty works, that phrase refers to what would be considered miraculous. And they did all these things in the name of Jesus. But look at Jesus' reply to these people. He says, and then I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, these people come appealing to their works. And so the very danger of suggesting that we must add works to the salvation plan of the gospel is that what happens is people begin to trust in those works when they should be trusting in Jesus Christ and then performing good works from that relationship. So they're saying in essence, look, we followed the church rules. We dress the way the church told us to dress. We cut our hair the way the church told us to cut our hair. We boycotted everybody that the church told us to boycott. We voted the way that our pastor told us to vote. Here we are. We are your good Christians. We are ready to call you Lord forever and ever. We gave our 10%. We did our part. We volunteered for Vacation Bible School. And Jesus says, away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. And like the people we've read about in the book of Philippians, their destiny is destruction. This is an awful thing. Why? Because they've trusted in the wrong things. They've trusted in the works of their hands and not in the Lord who enables those works. And there's a great and damning difference between the two. Well, back to our false teachers here. Their destiny is destruction in 319 
it says this, um, their end is destruction. And Paul actually listed this first in the verse. I want you to take a look at that momentarily. He, he said their end is destruction. And so everything that follows, speaking of their God being their belly, they, the glorying in their shame, their mindset on earthly things, he wanted all those to be viewed through this great and terrible fact that the destiny of these people of which he speaks is destruction. False teachers have this coming. Both Old and New Testaments make it clear. Let me show you what Peter says about this in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says, false prophets also arose among the people. And he speaks, of course, of the Old Testament, but he brings it to the new. And he says, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing themselves, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. See, again, that's their God being their belly. Peter saying the same thing. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation is from long ago, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep powerful words from Peter. See, these are the very marks of an unbeliever. They're led only by their own appetites. They glory in which they should, those things that they should be ashamed of. Not necessarily devious deeds, but acts of self-righteousness. They would boast in their holiness. They boast in their knowledge. They would boast in their achievements. But the truly saved individual only boasts in the cross of Christ. These false teachers, their minds are set on earthly things. These three things make us certain that these are children of wrath. These are not children of God. In contrast to these presented to us in the scriptures here are citizens of heaven. I want you to notice verse 20 here begins with the word but. And sometimes that is a very encouraging word in the scriptures because we have this description of these awful people that their end is destruction. But it's different with us. And notice Paul changes the the verbs and the pronouns here into the first person plural. He's talking about us now. He changes the subject from the third person, you know, who these people are and, and what they think to the first person because he is encouraged of better things for us. He says here in uh, 3, 20 and 21, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This brings us to the next part here, the citizens of heaven. First of all, in contrast to the uh, others, the citizens of heaven, their God is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one we're waiting for from heaven. By calling him Christ, we acknowledge that he is God's chosen one from before the foundations of the world, anointed to save us. We call him a savior. The enemies of the cross will hand you a resume showing all they've done to ensure that they are saved. All that they've done to see that they are saved. 
our resume is all that Jesus Christ has done to see that we are saved. And our resume of works that we have performed, we present as the result of Jesus having saved us. Therefore, he gets all the glory and honor for them. We cannot boast even in our own works, for they are the works of Christ through us. By calling him Jesus, we acknowledge that he was fully flesh and blood human, able to represent us in the court of God, able to sympathize with us in every way, yet he himself without sin. By calling him Lord, we show that he is worthy of our obedience, as God was often addressed as Lord in the Old Testament. So we continue to address him that way in the new, calling Jesus Lord. Contrast to the enemies of the cross who follow their own desires, we follow Jesus Christ. Their glory was their shame, but our glory is Christ Jesus. Look back in Philippians uh, earlier in the chapter and look what Paul says about this. Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he actually begins the contrast way back in the beginning of the chapter between the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. In other words, the Judaizing influencers. And look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. See, their glory is put in contrast to the trusting of the works of the flesh that these people did. Our glory is Christ. If we have anything to boast about, it's Christ. The word glory means fame or majesty. The word glory would be connected to the concept of reputation or name. Jesus Christ is our glory. We have none of our own because we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Think of every illustration of salvation in the New Testament. We were bought with a price. We're redeemed. We were saved. Every term identifies us as the beneficiaries of grace. We have no glory of our own, for we owe it all to Christ. And if you have ever done a good term, a good turn, give it to Christ. It is for his glory and his honor that we do anything good, for we do it from a position of the salvation into which he put us. Someday I might let you down. And you will question what I did. You will regret any glory you gave to me. If you gave me glory, if you gave me credit, if you gave me honor, you're going to have to call all that into question one day when I fail you. But if you count what I have done for you, if it has been a benefit to you, if you count that to the credit of Jesus Christ who saved me, you'll never regret that because Jesus Christ will never let you down. And then you've got the right perspective of things, for I, I can do nothing except through Jesus Christ, who does it through me. If indeed any of us have been any benefit to the people of God, it's the result of the work of Christ. And to him we ought to give our thanks. Worship we ought to give to him, the king of glory for all good deeds accomplished in the flesh. Now, this is part of our next point, really. Our next point is that our mindset is heavenly. Because verse 20 begins with the, this precious fact is that we are 
citizens in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And he uses the word is in a present continuous kind of thing. In other words, this is a present and ongoing reality. You may have heard the phrase, uh, that man is too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. I don't know, have you heard that phrase? Too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. I know it's been used of me, but this statement in and of itself is untrue. Properly heavenly minded people turn to doing earthly good every time. It's explicitly stated this way in Colossians 3, 2. It's commanded by Paul that we should be heavenly minded. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You see the contrast there also? Also, later in the book of Philippians, look what he encourages us. And indeed, of course, there'll be a whole sermon about this phrase. But he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul wants us to be heavenly minded. And so he brings this up, but we're citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. We live here only as sojourners, which is a a phrase both Paul and Peter used in their letters. Like we're soldiers in the field, taking our orders, not from the locals, but our orders from heaven. We're an occupying force here on earth. Paul is contrasting the focus here, the false teachers and those that they have led astray. They have their minds set on earthly things. In other words, they're toiling through every day thinking, have I done what I'm supposed to do? Have I, have I said my, my certain number of prayers? Have I done my certain amount of tithing today? Have I, you know, completed all the good things I'm supposed to do today? The minds are set on earthly things. We set our minds on the things above because we indeed are citizens of heaven. We're most interested in serving the interests of heaven, therefore. And this mindset will automatically result in good works in the present here on earth. But our priority has to be our citizenship in heaven. Our destiny, unlike the others whose destiny is destruction, our destiny is Christ-likeness. And this is found when we look at the phrase here um, that our citizenship is in heaven. And he, uh, from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, upon his return, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And we are experiencing degrees of Christ-likeness now as he conforms our character to his image. And then one day he will complete the picture by bringing us the rest of the way in our character, purifying us from all unrighteousness, and then he will transform our bodies as well to be like his glorious resurrection body, which is somehow fundamentally greater than our own. He is changing us in character and he will change us literally in body. And we look forward to that because in that day, as we receive incorruptible resurrection bodies, God also puts to death 
completely once and for all, all the sinful passions that cause conflict within us. When we see him, we shall be like him, John says, for we shall see him as he is. We will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. In contrast to those who have their minds set on earthly things, being led around by their own appetites, we take our orders from heaven, reach up to embrace this upward call in Christ to be like him evermore and more, and one day much more completely like him. I want to point out in the scriptures here that the power that accomplishes this It's none other than that same power that enables Jesus Christ to put all things under his feet. Our minds should be called back to chapter 2 when Paul talked about the fact that Jesus humiliated himself, humbled himself, that means. He put himself here in a body of flesh. He was obedient to God even to the point of death on a cross. But then God highly exalted him, and at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. This power that puts him in that position to put all things in subjection under his feet, this is that same power with which he deals with us the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that spoke all things into existence, it is this same power that's working in you to subject you to heavenly priorities. And this is a power, therefore, that will not fail. Citizens of heaven have as their God the Lord Jesus Christ, have as their glory Jesus Christ, have as their mindset heavenly things and a destiny of Christ-likeness. All that contrast, all 29 minutes and 57 seconds of it, is designed to bring us to this, the point. Stand firm thus. And what thus means is stand firm like this. Stand firm in this way. In what way? Back to the scriptures here. I want you to notice there is a chapter change here, but the chapter changes and the verse numbers are not necessarily inspired. They were a later edition. So the, his thought continues from chapter 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm thus. Thus points us back to the previous two verses, telling us that it is living in this manner this manner of awaiting him from heaven and awaiting this transformation that will take place. It is in this manner that we stand firm in the present time. This is how then we stand firm, keeping before us these great truths that we see. The fact that we're citizens of heaven awaiting a savior and our ultimate transfer transformation will be done by the power of God. False teachers convince us that we can accomplish things on our own power, but there's no hope there because our own power is what got us in the mess we're in. The only thing mankind has contributed to their own salvation is the sin that has made it necessary. 
But praise God, he has intervened. He began a good work in us and indeed will bring it to completion with this mighty power. As Paul opened the letters with that encouragement. With this very clear reference to the return of Jesus Christ that is here, that we are awaiting him from heaven, that that is a reference to his return. Let me help you understand what he's saying about this. See, Jesus Christ is coming back, and his second coming is as absolutely certain as his first. In his first, Jesus came precisely as had been scheduled before the foundation of the world. And when he came, he fulfilled about 300 prophecies without one mistake. No prophecy was passed over. No prophecy came to pass in contradiction to what had been written. It was very precisely planned and perfectly executed. The early church understood this, but as our society has become more and more human-centered, anthropocentric, as we could say if uh, for the theologians, as we became more human-centered, self-centered, humanistic in our thinking in these last few hundred years, we've lost sight of these great truths. But look how the early church took this. In Acts chapter 4, after some of the apostles, Peter and John, were imprisoned, beaten, and warned not to preach the gospel and They made it clear they were planning to disobey that warning to not preach the gospel. They came back. They told the other disciples everything that had happened. And they have a worship service. They have a worship service, not a lament about what had happened, but a worship service, not woe is me, the world's against us, just like it was against Jesus. No, no, no. They have a worship service and look at the primary content of that worship service. Look at the encouragement that they find in the sovereignty of God. They say this and that. They say when they heard it, that is what had happened, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. They quote from Psalm 2. And they say, why has this happened? For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you see how they understood these things? The leaders tried to avoid arresting Jesus at the Passover, but they couldn't. 
they they ended up arresting Jesus on the Passover and crucifying him on the Passover according to God's plan. God determined that it would happen on the Passover because he was the Lamb of God, and so it did, despite the, the attempts of the leaders to make it otherwise. If you have any doubt whether these believers had their theology right in these verses, look at verse 31. What happened after they said these things? Were they corrected by God? Were they rebuked? No. The place was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. God doesn't fill people with the Spirit right after they blaspheme his name. And then they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In other words, true faith has its true result to speak the word of God with boldness. Now understand this about the second coming. If we exclude the Gospels, the Bible has more to say about Jesus' second coming than his first. Now think about that. See, the Gospels are the historical account of his actual coming, but the rest of the Bible speaks of his first coming through prophecy, through interpretation, understanding of it, everything else. But the truth of the matter is if we add up all the prophecies concerning his first and second comings, there are more prophecies about his second coming. There's more yet to be fulfilled than he is already fulfilled. And now you see what we say back there in Acts chapter 3. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what will this return of Jesus Christ be like? To make this picture complete for you. Let's go to the book of Revelation. Let's talk about that return. What does it look like? And I want you to look as your Lord returns. History written in advance here in Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Yeah, this is Jesus returning. This is an awesome scene. I hope you're getting this. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I can't emphasize enough, this is how we stand firm. This is how we resist the devil. This is how we resist the temptations of the desires of our own heart. When we hear the world or the flesh or the devil bring temptation to us, we say, you want me to do what? Let me check with heaven on this just a moment. Let, let me check with heaven and see if it's okay that I give in to them his temptation. Let's see. Uh, Jesus comes and he's called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Uh, 
I don't think I want to give in to that particular sin today. I think I'd rather serve him who's on the horse. He seems to be in charge at this point. Okay. He's called the word of God. All the armies of heaven are with him. He's got a, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now, I'm not going to be one of those today. Instead of giving into your temptation, I'm going to spend my time serving him who is called faithful and true. He who treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. I think today I'll serve him. I'm going to stay right where I am and I'm going to serve him. You see, we have only to press on with our eyes fixed on the prize, the, the upward call in Christ Jesus. This is the key to our perseverance that we await a savior in this. We stand firm because God with his word has given us absolute certainty concerning these things. He's assured our hearts also with the presence of the Holy Spirit so that when we hear passages like Revelation chapter 19 and Philippians 3 and other places that remind us of these great truths, our spirit with his spirit says yes and amen and come quickly, Lord Jesus. Boy, this is powerful to understand that this is how we stand firm. Well, what do we do with what we've learned today? Well, first of all, yes, absolutely. Stand firm by keeping these truths ever before you and understand everything that you learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. When you learn about his first coming, it reassures us of his second. And as we read of his second coming, we understand it to be a certainty as absolutely certain as his first coming, which is to us history. Fact. So first of all, stand firm. Secondly, embrace your citizenship. This is a present reality that we leverage from is this, that we indeed are citizens of heaven. This defines our loyalty. This defines our destiny. This defines then our future focus because this is a kingdom that is still coming. It is here and yet it is still coming and we are citizens of it. We are still in the world, but we are no longer of the world. Jesus didn't pray us out of the world in John 17. He prays that we would be protected from the evil one, not taken out of the world. We stay here. This is our mission field. Remember, though, that you're a sojourner, that we take our orders from heaven. God's word is our chief authority. Many people today are chasing after the things of the world. They're chasing after uh, social justice by the hands of men. And they're abandoning the gospel of salvation from sin for some kind of gospel that's not a gospel. They are preaching some kind of a gospel about, about restoration, some kind of a gospel about equity and deliverance from earthly oppression. But the thing we need delivered from is the wrath of God. Justice is indeed a worthwhile and godly pursuit, and we should do all that we can to see that we live in a just society and we hold authorities here as much as we are able. We hold them accountable to act justly, but we are citizens of heaven and we are ambassadors for Christ and we are going against 
the world who has acted unjustly, and we are presenting the gospel so that they can be reconciled to God and justified to God. That is the first and most important justice that we have to see to. And everything else is secondary. Modern movements concerning justice and social justice, they're they're motivated by worldly philosophies that are counter to the gospel, counter to God's will. And two can't walk together unless they're agreed, according to the Bible. The fruit of these godless philosophers will not be fit for the consumption of the heavenly. And the sinful desires of men ought not to dictate the priorities of the bride of Christ. The gospel is far better. The gospel is about eternal redemption from sin, forgiveness of sins, and the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. None of those things can be offered up by the philosophies and the efforts of mankind. Our loyalty, our citizenship is in heaven. Embrace your citizenship. Now with Paul also, we need to think this way. We need to think in terms of we are citizens from heaven and we're awaiting our Savior's return. And we are to be representing his interests here then. Maybe when I read the book of Revelation, or maybe when I read the passage from the book of Acts, maybe you thought, I've never thought about it that way. That's a fine start. Philippians 3.15 says this. It says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it also to you. Take this from a new thought to a familiar thought, an everyday thought. How do we do that? Well, by more and more washing with the word. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 to stop being conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The primary raw material we have for the renewing of the mind is the Word of God, but that must be met with faith and the Spirit of God. And so think this way and have your mind renewed. And then finally, and fourthly here in our applications today, I want you to find a godly example to follow. A godly example to follow, not someone far and distant, not someone from the past. These people can be inspirational to us, but we need to find godly examples to to follow in the here and now, close to you and within reach for that personal counsel, counsel, for that personal accountability. This kind of godly example will not be filled by the TV preacher or an online pastor like you're listening to now. It must be someone you can reach and be relatable to so that you can see their whole manner of life. This is why Paul broadens it out and says, us, you know, follow our example. And and he broadens it out to himself and Timothy, who's sending a letter to him. And then there were also others like-minded with Paul. And the Philippian church would know who they were. He was, in fact, sending Timothy to them. He edified Timothy in their sight by what he said about Timothy earlier in the letter and says, now follow our example. He thinks the way I do. He has the interests I have. And this is accomplished in the fellowship of believers. It might be time for you to make a decision. 
to join with a local church or to get baptized in your local church or to begin to meet personally with someone in your church that you can follow, that you can hold accountable. And that's how we can apply and put right into action what we've learned today, that we, in fact, are citizens of heaven, and in this we stand firm. Let us close with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise you this day, and we thank you for what you have shown us today in your scriptures. Lord, help us be ever mindful of the great truth that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the one whose eyes burn like a flaming fire, whose, who, who out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword with which to judge the nations. Father, let us be in awe of this, and let us walk daily in the knowledge of these things, the, the personal conviction of these things. Have your spirit to accord with ours in affirming that indeed he, he returns. He returns with the certainty with which he left. And Lord, we pray this day that you'll give us understanding of these things and help us to stand firm and help us to know you more this day. Transform our minds, Lord, and conform us to the image of your Son, that we may bring you great glory, that we may execute all your purposes here as sojourners on this earth to bring many to know you. We pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thank you for joining us today, and I invite you to contact us. Uh, we can be reached at whitesrun.org, where you can learn more about us and the ministries at Whites Run Baptist Church. And it also has service times. You can come join us in Carrollton, Kentucky. If you're in the area of Louisville or Cincinnati, we're kind of right in between. Please pay us a visit. And you can email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. Email us with your questions or concerns, your thoughts, comments, whatever you have. Email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. We will answer that email personally. I thank you for coming today, and I pray that God blesses you mightily this week.